You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. Visit walkingingrace.org media to learn how you can help these messages reach more people. Well, good evening. If you would please turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I'm doing something tonight that I don't think I have ever done before in all the years that I've had the privilege to serve in ministry. I'm coming back to finish what I didn't finish this morning. Um, I've, I've uh, planned many times two-part sermons, knowing in advance that I would come back in the evening and finish. But uh, today's different because I planned to be in Matthew 18 tonight and just didn't uh, have the time to make the final point that I wish to make this morning. Now, I blamed that on a 40-minute time slot when I was in Alabama, <laughs> but I can't blame that on a 40-minute time slot this morning. So, it must be me, huh? It must, must be me. But let's read again John 17, beginning it. By the way, what that means is, I don't know how long this is going to go tonight. You may witness my first 15-minute sermon. I don't, I don't know. Let's read it, verse 1, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. John chapter 17, verse 1. Our Lord prays for us. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, what a tremendous thing you've given us in giving us this prayer that our great high priest prayed for us while he was on the earth. For all of those people whom you gave to him before he came into the world, for all of us whom he secured by his own blood. Thank you that we can read, even tonight, what was on his mind and his heart and came out of his mouth as he interceded on our behalf. Lord, I pray that the time we spend in this chapter tonight would be edifying for us. I pray that my brothers and sisters would be encouraged, that you would do your work in our hearts in accordance with your perfect knowledge of each one of us. Lately, Lord, it seems more and more I'm just struck by the, the gravity of the moment in which we're living, the weightiness of these things. And I pray that you would impress that upon all of us that we would recognize that we are indeed very near the return of your Son and that we would live our lives in light of that day, even as we live in this day. 
Bless these things to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for anyone who wasn't here with us this morning, let me just begin by briefly reviewing what we're doing here in John chapter 17. As I said this morning, I just do not have time to go through this passage verse by verse and exposit it in that way, not in one sermon or even two. And so what we did is we took a high-level view of this chapter, thinking specifically about this subject, that Jesus came into the world to secure His church. And we noted four observations from this chapter that makes that point. We saw that the Father gave a people to His Son. Jesus says this five times in the prayer, but when you take into account all the pronouns that refer to the same people 49 times in 26 verses, he makes mention of us. He makes mention of those men who had already believed in him, and he's also talking about, as he says in the prayer, all of us who had come to believe in him through their witness, through the spreading of the gospel throughout the earth, throughout the ages, all of us in view as Jesus utters this prayer. And so what is crystal clear is that a people were given to the Son by the Father. And then we ask, well, when were they given to the Son by the Father? And the answer to that is in the prayer itself. When Jesus says that He wanted the world to understand and He wants us to understand that, that the Father has loved us even as He loved His Son. And then just one verse later He says that the Father has loved the Son from before the world began. We are a people given to the Son before the world was ever made. And we walked through some other passages in the New Testament and saw how that accords with what God reveals throughout His Word, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that when Christ came into the world, He came into the world a representative. He came to be the head of a new family, as it were, a new human race, a redeemed human race. What the first Adam lost for those people whom he represented, the last Adam rescues the people and gives life to the people whom he represented. So Jesus came into the world to redeem a people given to him by God, the great shepherd of the sheep, knowing who his sheep were, lays down his life for the sheep, rescues his sheep, saves his sheep. Jesus came to the world loving us. So, given a people by the Father. Then second, we, we saw He was given a mission on behalf of that people. And we asked, what was He given to do? Well, He was given to make God's glory known to us. And we talked about that concept of glory, that it's really the name of God. It's the, it's the character of God. It's the truth about who God is. He came to make God known to us. And in fact, he says that in the sixth verse, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. To say it another way, he came to, to give us eternal life. And we saw that eternal life is defined by Jesus in this prayer as knowing God, knowing the Father and knowing him. And so in making God known to us, not just intellectually, but bringing us into the fellowship of the Trinity, by virtue of salvation, God's glory is made known to us, which is to say His name is made known to us. And we saw that the way that Jesus did this was with words given to Him by the Father to be given to us. And so throughout this prayer, you see the, the absolute necessity of the Word of God to everything that God does in saving His people. 
not just in our regeneration. As Peter says, we were born again as a result of of meeting with, with seed, the seed of God's Word. But now our growth in the Christian faith is explained also by our encounter with truth. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. God saved us by bringing us a message, and now He is saving us. He is conforming us to the image of His Son by bringing us a message, the message of His Word. And so, the mission was to make the glory of God known, to make the name of God known, to give us eternal life. And He does this by virtue of the words that were given to him to give to us. And we, we saw even this morning in Peter's encounter with Cornelius that we are a people saved through a message. We are saved by Jesus, but saved through a message. When an angel wanted um, to communicate a message to Cornelius' household that would mean their salvation, he sends Peter with that message. And as Peter preaches the gospel, Cornelius and, and those in his household came to faith in Christ. And so Romans 1.16, which tells us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That should have great meaning to us. This is how God means to save the world. It is through the preaching of the gospel. So the son given a people by the father, the son given a mission to accomplish on behalf of that people. And then we saw that he actually accomplished it. He faithfully executed his assignment. As we said, uh, in the Trinity, by virtue of the one will that is found in God, the eternal counsels of the Trinity, Each member of the Godhead is described as having a particular role in salvation. The Father plans, the Son secures, and then the Holy Spirit procures, brings those people to the Son whom the Son laid down His life for. Jesus accomplished what He was given to do. This is what He says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. So he finished everything he came to the world to do, which fourth we said means he secured it all for us. He secured it all for us. And so out of those four observations, we we noted some implications. One, this makes us aware of the personal nature of the passion of Christ. He came for us. He lived for us. He died for us, was raised for us, intercedes for us, is coming again for us. Paul was able to say in Galatians 2.20, and we can say tonight that the Son of God loved us and gave Himself for us, but we can make it more personal than that. Paul says, He loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus died for us, but Jesus died for you, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the personal nature of what Jesus did comes into clear view. Jesus came to the world knowing exactly for whom it was He was coming. And so He came for me, and He came for you, if you know Him. The personal nature of the passion of Christ. Then we we said this also points out the gracious nature of the passion of Christ. Because we have to ask the question, why me? Why you? And the Bible gives us the answer to that question, and the answer really emphasizes the negative, not because of anything seen in you, not because of anything foreseen in you. In fact, the fact that the choice was made before time means it's not explained by anything that happens in time. 
It is God freely extending His grace. It's not grace if God's not free. And so as a matter of sheer grace and mercy, love, God chose you and chose me to be His. As we said, this was not an arbitrary choice. Everything God does does is perfectly wise and perfectly good. But the reason in God that explains His choice of you and me He hasn't told us except for one thing. He just chose to love us. Just as he told Israel, I didn't love you because you were greater than all of the peoples. I loved you because I loved you. Because I swore an oath to your fathers. And and if you go back and learn about those those, uh, covenants that God made with with their forefathers, they were were covenants made on the basis of grace. Those, Those men didn't earn it, deserve it. They weren't looking. Abraham wasn't looking for God. When God took hold of Abram's life, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. How do you explain God's choice of you and me? The grace of God, the love of God, the free love of God. So the personal nature of the passion of Christ and the gracious nature of the passion of Christ. Then we said a third implication was there is precision then in the way that we preach the gospel. I'm not saying that God hasn't used gospel preaching that is less than precise because i'm going to say that most of us came to faith in christ through gospel preaching that was less than precise but the more we know the more we're responsible for and so we don't go into the world saying jesus died for you that is that's not what you find in the new testament you you can't find anyone preaching the gospel like that in the new testament but what we do say to the world is christ died for sinners Christ died to bring the forgiveness of sins. Christ came to seek and save the lost. And as we declare that good news, that Jesus died for sinners, the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and does His work in the hearts of the elect of God. This is what is known as effectual calling And the heart is open and the mind is enlightened. The eyes are open. The ears are open. The heart of flesh is granted. Regeneration, new birth is granted. And now where before there was a hard heart, there's a heart of flesh. Where there was blindness, there's sight. Where there was resistance and hatred for God, now there's a love for Jesus Christ and a desire to be saved by Him. The sinner agrees with God's verdict. I am not only a sinner, I am the sinner. I am the foremost of sinners. God crushes us with the knowledge of our sinfulness and then holds forth an unbelievably merciful offer of the forgiveness of all of our sins and the clothing of us and the perfect righteousness of His Son. And He says, come, come, take freely of everything that I've made available to sinners in my son. And by the grace of God, we run to Jesus. We know from John 6, we are being drawn by the Father. We are brought by the Father to the Son, but not in a way that's against our will, in a way that God changes our will so that we, of our own desires, run to Jesus. But God is the one who explained, explains those new desires. And so knowing the truth. Now we preach the gospel in a way that accords with the truth. Jesus died for sinners. And, he, and, and the promise of the gospel is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Will you turn from your sins and believe in God's Son? 
Will you look to the only Savior God has given to men? Knowing, we know all the while, the only ones who will hear that message and believe it and respond to it are those whom the Lord does a gracious work in their heart that grants them what they never had in themselves due to the fall of Adam, penitent faith. God saves sinners. Amen? Amen. So this is what we covered this morning. Now, I had one more point, and that's what we come to tonight. Knowing these things, now as we walk through this chapter, we recognize the riches that Christ impoverished himself in order to to communicate to us. Christ chose poverty, chosen for this by his Father, but he chooses this himself. One will in God. The Father's will, not at odds with the Son's will, not at odds with the Spirit's will. And so what the Father has chosen the Son to do, the Son chooses to do. And what He chose to do is to impoverish Himself to enrich us. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 real quickly. And look at what Paul writes in the ninth verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is in a giving context, encouraging the people of God to be generous. But He does it in light of salvation. Verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and word and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, encouraging them to take part in this offering on behalf of poor saints in Jerusalem. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Verse 9, now he motivates them in light of their own story. Their own salvation. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Read Philippians 2, how Christ embraced humility in order to bring us to God. This is the Son of God laying aside the visible expression of His eternal glory and taking to Himself the form of a bondservant in order to lay down His life on our behalf to bring us to God. He impoverished Himself in order to bring us riches so that when we have these truths in view and now we walk through John 17, what do you see? You see what these riches are. What do you have, child of God, because of what Jesus has done for you? And so I just want to walk through the verses and mention each one of these things. And and much of what I'll say is is repeating what I've already said this morning and, and briefly tonight. But it's good for us to hear these things again. What is yours because of what Jesus prayed about in John 17 and what he accomplished in John 17? What is yours and what is mine? Number one, we now have eternal life. Verse 2, you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. What do you have tonight? You have eternal life. And you know this, but I want to remind you, eternal life is, is infinitely more than just an everlasting existence. 
In fact, every human being ever born is going to have an everlasting existence. There will be many, many people who have an everlasting existence outside the accepting presence of God in a very real hell. They will exist forever, but in hell. Now, what God has given us is is reconciliation. What God has given us is fellowship. What God has given us is a brand new kind of life, a brand new quality of life. It is the life of fellowship with God. In fact, that's how Jesus defines it in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Isn't it amazing? You have God's creatures, mankind, living right now, their lives on the planet that he made, and they are strangers to their creator, having no true knowledge of him, having no real fellowship with him. When the Lord Jesus saved you, he took that away and granted you the knowledge of himself. That's eternal life. And this is the kind of life we're going to have forevermore, forever and ever and ever and ever. We know him now but we've not yet seen him. And one day, what we know by faith right now, we're going to know by sight. And we will live the rest of our existence in the everlasting day, the day that never ends, in the knowledge of our Father and of his Son. That is eternal life. And we have eternal life now, you see, right now. Jesus died to grant you fellowship with God. There was no way for there to be fellowship with your sins still in the way. So for fellowship to exist, your sins had to be atoned for, had to be forgiven. And for fellowship with a thrice holy God, an infinitely holy God to exist, not only must sins be removed, but righteousness must be granted. And God gave us as a gift to our spiritual account the very righteousness of His Son so that now by the blood of Jesus we are ushered right into the presence of God and we are stationed in the grace of God never to be moved out of that situation. Not explained by us, but explained by the finished work of Christ which means that our status before God never shifts, never changes, never wavers. Since the Lord Jesus has saved us on our best day, we have fellowship with God. On our worst day, we have fellowship with God and with His Son. We long for the day when all sin will be put away and our battle with indwelling sin will be over. Sins without in a world that's filthy, sins within in unredeemed humanness, all of it put away. And in absolute holiness, we will worship our God, our King. We will know Him forever. That's what he died to give you. Which means, second, he makes the Father known to us. We now know God as our Father. It's not just language. It's not just words. What what an unimaginable thing it is that we should be called the children of God. And we are. We are God's children now. We've been granted a new nature. We've been adopted into God's family having been given all the rights of heirs, sharing in the inheritance that belongs to the Son, chosen in Him, 
redeemed in him, standing before God, clothed in his righteousness, sharing in his inheritance. We are the sons of God because of our relationship to the Son of God. This means that God has made His Son known to us. This is how we came to know our Father, in and through His Son. It's the only way to be reconciled to God, in Jesus Christ. And our Lord makes mention of that in verses 7 and 8, that we have come to know, and He, and he, he repeats this. Tonight when you have more time and you go home, I want you just to underline every time you see these words, you sent me. You sent me. You sent me. This is what we, his disciples, have come to know, that he was sent by the Father. That is to say that he, he came from heaven. This is the eternal Son who took to himself an additional nature, a real human nature, to save his people from our sins. This is what we've come to know. We now know Jesus in a way that only those whose eyes have been opened will ever know him. And in this way, we came to know the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, it says, and he died for all. Let me see if I've got that right. Oh, here it is. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. What Paul is saying in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, is now we see the whole world different. We don't see people the way we saw them before the Lord saved us. Now we see either a brother or a sister or someone who needs to be reconciled to God. Now we look at the world and we see people who will either be in heaven or in hell. We didn't think that way before the Lord saved us. Well, what else has changed? Now, listen again to what he says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. The reason why our view of humanity has forever changed is because our view of Jesus has forever changed. We would hear about Jesus perhaps growing up. We would maybe see a holiday movie that had as a theme something about Jesus, or maybe somebody gave us a Bible and we would read about Jesus, but we didn't know Jesus. We didn't know who He was. When the Lord saved us, He opened our eyes to see who Jesus really is. This is what He talked about in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know these verses well, but He says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case... The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. What a tremendous description of the gospel. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, the gospel we preach is a message of glory. It is, it is, it is unveiling the true person, nature, attributes, character of Jesus, and it's light. And the devil is at work in the world blinding minds to that light, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves 
but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What happened when the Lord saved you and me? Just as He spoke the worlds into existence and said, let there be light, just as creation began. So the new creation began when God said, let there be light. And in your heart, God's light shined, which gave you knowledge of who Jesus really is. And when you knew the Son in a saving way, then you came to know God as your Father. Look back, if you've turned with me to 2 Corinthians, to John 17. This is what Jesus impoverished Himself to enrich us with. Eternal life, making us to know God as our Father, making us to know Jesus as our Lord and the Son of God. We know who He is. And then on our behalf, Jesus intercedes. This is the ninth verse when He tells us that He's praying for us, not for the world, but for us, given Him by His Father before the world began, Jesus intercedes for us, His people. He's interceding right now. You know what your Lord is doing for you right this moment in heaven? He's interceding for you at the right hand of the majesty on high. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What, what has God given you in his son? Everything. If he would give you his son, what will he withhold? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. It's an amazing thing how God holds on to us. Do you know that even now when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes on your behalf with groanings that are unutterable? God, the Spirit of God, interceding for you when you don't know how to pray. And even as the Spirit of God, the way I sort of envision it is uh, editing my prayers. No, not that, this. Not that, this. He didn't ask for this, but this. And not only is the Spirit of God interceding on my behalf, but the Son of God is interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. How secure are we when God is interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says the same thing. There are many verses that teach us this truth. The Son of God, what did He give us? He gives us security. He gives us security, even as He intercedes on our behalf. In fact, He says in verse 11 of John 17, He's asking the Father to keep us. He notes that while, I, while He was on the earth, He was keeping His men. But now he's, he's seeing Himself back in glory and He's asking the Father to keep us. How does the Father keep us? Well, through this intercession we just mentioned and by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is given to us as a gift and He is God's seal to us. 
the security seal, the pledge, as it were, of our final inheritance. The Spirit of God will see us home. We are not left as orphans. We have a helper. Jesus is with us, represented in the person of the Holy Spirit. You notice what our Lord says in verse 26? He says, and I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And how does Christ abide in you tonight? In the person of the Comforter, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He representing Christ's presence in the lives of Christ's people. So we are secure. The Father keeping us by the power of the Spirit in answer to the prayer of the Son of God on our behalf. What this means, what all of this means, is that Jesus impoverished himself to give you the riches of joy. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Not just mild joy, but joy made full in our lives, in ourselves. The suffering servant, the man of many sorrows, impoverished himself experienced all of those sorrows so that you and I might have his joy made full in us. The worst day you will ever live as a Christian is better than the best day you ever lived as a lost person. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how heartbreaking. It doesn't matter how crushing it is. It's momentary. And it's light compared to the weight of glory that is to be revealed. Brother, sister, that's a reason for joy. That's why even in your tears, you can rejoice. Even in your sorrows, there's a sense of joy and comfort and peace. Because you're not alone. You are in the hand of the Son and the hand of the Father. And no one can snatch you out. And we're going to see next Sunday in Matthew 18, your Lord defends you zealously. He has so identified himself with you that if someone harms a child of God, it would be better for them that a millstone be hung around their neck and then be cast into the middle of the sea and drowned than to harm a child of God. And I tell you that ought to give everyone pause about how they treat the children of God. So he died. He suffered to give you joy. Then in the 14th verse, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. He's given you joy even in the face of hatred and he gives you a reason why you're hated. It is curious, isn't it, why Christians are so despised? I mean, given all the things you could despise in this world, why 
does this world so despise the church? And Jesus tells us why. Because we don't belong to this realm anymore. He has changed us in such a way that we don't fit. You see? We don't belong. So identified with Him that just as He is not of this world, we are not of this world. In fact, He repeats that twice. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. But in the midst of this world, he prays that we would not be taken out of the world, but kept in the midst of it from Satan. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And so what he's given us is an understanding, you see, of what our life is going to be like until we meet with him face to face. It's going to be a life of difficulty. It's going to be a life of hatred. But don't, don't despair. It points to the very fact that you belong to him. The reason why you're hated is because you belong to him. Just as he's not of the world, you are no longer of the world. And you're still here because you have a purpose. He didn't pray for you to be taken out of it, but to be kept in the midst of it. Your calling is not isolation. Your calling is ambassadorship. Your calling is to be a witness, and he will keep you right in the midst of this hateful world keeping you from the evil one. Something else he enriched us with is the promise of sanctification, the promise of increasing holiness. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And I'll go ahead and include verse 19 with this because I think both aspects of sanctification are in view in these two verses. Verse 19, for their sake I sanctify myself. Christ completely devoting himself to his assignment, devoting himself to his father, devoting himself to his task so that we also may be sanctified in truth. Set apart unto God, wholly committed to God. And this is what the Lord did when he saved us. He, he transferred us from the domain we were born into, a domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his own son. We now belong to God, no longer of the world, but we belong to God. And now as we live in this world, though we have a very real enemy, Christ prayed, and it's being answered, that you and I would be sanctified through the ministry of the Word of God, that we would take on more and more of the likeness of our Savior, that we would take on more and more holiness, a separateness that is seen in the people of God. Jesus prayed for this, and Jesus is doing this by the work of the Spirit with the Word of God. Far from taking us out of the world, He sends us into the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Part of your riches is the responsibility to be a witness for Jesus Christ for as long as you are here, to take his words to a needy world. And he prays for all of these things in a way that includes all of us and everyone whom we might ever reach with his word. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all 
for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as, you're, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The saving work that I do in the lives of these people will be a testimony to the world of who I really am. By the way, the, the call, the, the prayer for unity that's repeated throughout this prayer, not just once, is often misunderstood. You'll hear people exhort the church, now let's all be one because if we're unified, the world will see that Jesus is Lord. Uh, no, that's not what he's praying about. What he's praying about has been answered. We are one. Now, we ought to live in a way that reflects who we are. But every person in this room who really knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you and I have been united in fellowship through salvation with our Father, with our Savior, by the Spirit, with each other. It is a reality. It's not something waiting on our obedience. It's something that Christ did by His saving work. And now we need to live in light of that unity, which is a matter of obedience. But the unity itself is done. God did it. We are one. And because He has made us new people, sharing in the same life, reflecting that glory that's been entrusted to us, verse 22, the world is able to see the saving work that Jesus has done in His people, which says something about Christ Himself. Riches, the riches of glory, verse 22, the glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And we talked about that this morning, how, how this concept of glory has to do with revelation, the manifestation of truth. The Father assigned to the Son the responsibility of making His glory known. Christ saves a people and now entrusts us with the responsibility of making His glory known. And the way the glory is known is through the words that He's given to us to preach and teach and share. What privilege. And then He says, verse 23, that he wants us to know how much we're loved and how we're loved, and he wants the world to know it. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And we saw it this morning that he, go, he answers the question of what he means by that in the very next verse when he says to his father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. When did God love you, Christian, from all eternity? And He wants the world to know it. And the world does know it. In fact, this explains, as He said, why does the world hate you? Because you're not of the world. We could say it another way. Why does the world hate you? Because God loves you. Because you've been loved by the Son. And even though the world would never put it in those terms and can't even explain its hostility towards you, the very presence of its hostility towards you testifies to its knowledge that you're different. There's something in you that the unregenerate human being despises. 
which ought to encourage you. It is a high privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ, isn't it? What is our attitude to be according to the book of James when we suffer? Joy. What a testimony to the reality of what God has done in your life that you don't fit in a God-hating, Christ-needing world. And riches, the assurance that you're going to be in heaven. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am. Christ already envisioning himself, having returned to heaven, the ascension, the glorification of the Son. And he's praying in verse 24 that we will all be with him where he is so that we may see his glory. They may see my glory, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He says earlier in the prayer, this is a return to the glory he had before the world was made. Laying aside the visible expression of this glory to come and save us, he returns into heaven and the glory is restored. And now he wants us, has prayed for us, his prayers are always answered, for us to be with him where he is and behold that glory. How rich is it to know that when you close your eyes in death, you'll be home. Home in the presence of Christ. Home in the arms of God. Home with a vision of glory. Riches. Which means that right now we, final thought, verse 26, live our lives with the knowledge of God's love. And I've made your name known to them and will make it known, as we talked about this morning, this increasing knowledge of our God. He goes on making the name of God known to us so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. What has God done? According to the book of Romans, He has poured out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When we met with Christ, we met with love for the first time. God's love. This world knows a kind of love, but it's not, it's not God's love. It's a love that's merely human. It, it, it bears a, a vague resemblance to what Adam knew before he fell. In many cases, it's been so distorted that it's actually perverted what this world calls love. But what you and I know is the pure love of Almighty God. It has come to, to reside now in us. Because in verse 26, Christ has come to reside in us. And so we are a people who've been given the privilege to know what was once hidden in God, but now has been made known to and in and through the church. This mystery of what the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to accomplish. We are a people given by the Father to the Son. We are a people rescued by the Son as He completed His mission. We are a people secure in the Son because He has secured for us everything that was ordained for us. We are a people who, are, who have been enriched through His poverty. Though He was rich, He became poor 
that through his poverty we might be made rich. And we have been made rich. We have eternal life. We know our God. We're kept by him, interceded on behalf of by him every day. We have his joy. We're being sanctified. Conformed to his image. Sent into the world on his behalf. Disseminators of his glory. Knowing how much he loves us. Making the world through us to know how much he loves us. Having his love poured out in our hearts. Because he is in our hearts. In the person of the spirit of God. How rich are we? Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious chapter and thank you for all of the things by which you encourage the hearts of your people. You have not only done these things for us, you have made these things known to us. And may we meditate upon these things deeply and appreciate what our position is. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, but because you have loved us. You have loved us because you have loved us. And we were amazed by this and humbled by this, astounded by this. But we have joy in this and we rest in this. And we worship you for this. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.